Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is a follow-up to last week's, continuing the discussion of Eraserhead and Inland Empire, but this time connecting them together, finding 10 connections between David Lynch's first film and last film. This is my first two-parter, and uh, I'm excited to proceed with it. But before we get there, uh, just an update on all of the work I've been up to in the past week. Quite a bit has been published in that time. So first of all, on uh, Patreon for a dollar a month, um, I am providing a follow-up to this public podcast where I also discuss Eraserhead, but this time in relation to Twin Peaks. It's part of my Twin Peaks cinema series. So I timed that so that it would go up around the same time as this podcast. Definitely, if you've been considering becoming a patron, now's the time. Jump in and uh, join in there. It also That episode also has Twin Peaks reflections on the characters of Gordon, Harry, and Cooper, big one there, locations of Owl Cave and the Bookhouse, and uh, tying the storyline of Cooper and Annie into Season 3, Part 3, plus a reading of an archive piece on Paris Belongs to Us and more. I was also a guest on the Peaks Chats podcast this past week on to discuss uh, episode 14 of the series, The Killer's Reveal. So uh, don't check that out unless, of course, you've seen Twin Peaks. But if you have, it was a great discussion. Uh, enjoyed that invitation and uh, look forward to hearing their whole uh, podcast at this point. They're, they're carrying through the entire season. They've done TV shows in the past like The Prisoner and um, I think Babylon 5 and others. And now they're sort of speeding through Twin Peaks, doing often two episodes at a time. But we paused on this for the the whole uh just to focus on this one episode because it's such a big one and speaking of big ones on uh patreon for my five dollar a month tier i have just now like moments ago really finished winding up my lost in twin peaks episode guide series that's been going for almost three years at this point this is going to become a public podcast but for now it's only available to patrons and uh, it's only going to become public little by little over the next year. So if you want to hear my discussion of Firewalk with me, the Twin Peaks film, uh, jump right into that. It's in 12 parts. So for the uh, $5 a month tier in this past uh, a week, I released parts uh, five, which is my reactions, fans today, and the feel of the film. Part six, covering the structure, subplots, and the periphery. Part seven, covering Laura Palmer and her storylines. Part eight, covering the mythology. Part nine, covering the mysteries, who killed Teresa Banks and why was Laura Palmer killed. And then part 12 was a bonus covering a season three spoiler discussion. And uh, those missing chapters there, 10 and 11, those are actually public. So you can check those out even if you're not a patron because they're readings of my past work on Firewalk with me. First archive in part 10 and second archive in part 11 spanning uh, the past 12 years or so of uh, work that I've done on this film in various forms, podcast clips, sampling them, uh, reading some full pieces in some cases, and and more. On the site, lostinthemovies.com, and of course, I should have mentioned at the outset, but the Patreon site is patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. On lostinthemovies.com, the home site, I published uh, an essay, The Long Return to Journey Through Twin Peaks, a behind-the-scenes essay, part three of four, in which I continue a series of essays I've been doing discussing the creation of my Journey Through Twin Peaks videos, the process that went into them and all of that. And this focuses on uh, my creation last year, 
of uh, the videos leading up to season three, discuss that discussion, discussing various creators and their other works. And I also wound up my Mad Men season five viewing diary. I'll be starting season six next week. So this was the episode, The Phantom, great season finale, uh, episode 13 of season five. And uh, also put some uh, roundups up for my uh, season three videos and my August Patreon podcasts. Uh, so I should mention on YouTube, I put up the last of those Twin Peaks videos that was going up this summer. This was uh, mini chapters on season three. This is material that I released last summer in one big video, but I wanted to divide it up into little ones. And I've been having premieres where people would show up and join the chat or whatever for a few minutes and uh, and watch this. So the one that I put up was Twin P and I put it up on the fourth anniversary of the season three finale. It was Twin Peaks, the two-sided finale, video essay on season three, part 17 and 18, Journey Through Twin Peaks. So that's what I've been up to. I've been uh, running threads on Twitter to keep track of all this work, 22 pieces in a period of, I think, 17 days. So been really busy. I mean, most of this was prepared ahead of time, but it all just happened to go up around this time because that was uh, just how the, the cookie crumbled. So uh, you can follow that. And I also just finished phase two of my path towards uh, back to journey through Twin Peaks. So my process of creating a backlog and finishing projects uh, so that I can get to the next phase of those videos is, is moving along. I should warn at the outset, if you're listening to this, chances are you've seen Twin Peaks, you're a David Lynch fan, or maybe you're just checking it out because uh, you're curious about films that you haven't seen or you've seen these and haven't seen Twin Peaks. Either way, there will be spoilers for Twin Peaks in this podcast. I mentioned them offhand, um, some crucial plot points when discussing uh, other aspects of uh, Lynch's work. So just wanted to put that out there. Uh, tread lightly if you have not seen Twin Peaks before listening to the podcast. So with all of that said and done, a lot of Lynch in that other work, we're going to now focus on the bookends of his career and what brings them together. I'll show you light now. Bonds bright forever. No more blue tomorrows. You won't hide now, huh? Here are 10 connections between Eraserhead and Inland Empire. Features that they share in common, but that also separate them. These are bookends to his career, his first feature film and his last feature film, in a body of work that contains exactly 10 films. And as the return tells us, 10 is the number of completion. And of course, there's also 10 letters in David Lynch's name, which is a funny coincidence I only noticed when I was uh, Googling something and saw a t-shirt that had the word Lynch and it had a different film in each letter of his name. And I realized, gee, if they just put David in there too, they could do all of his films. I thought that was kind of cool. But there's a nice, perfect symmetry to it. And in a way, these films are mirror images of each other. They reflect back these commonalities, but from different perspective. It's also worth mentioning that the contrast between the aesthetics of these films is pretty sharp. Uh, Racerhead is very more much more rigid and fixed and uh inland empire is very free-flowing and open 
you know, Harry Dean Stanton talks about a vast network, a huge ocean of possibility, and that feels like Inland Empire. It also feels like channel surfing or surfing the web. And it's interesting to contrast the character in the beginning, the lost girl, looking at the TV with all of these cascade of different images flowing across it, and contrast that with Henry staring at the radiator. Um, you know, this is 1977. He's only got one channel on that radiator, and it plays the same program all day long. The first connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is that they're both very avant-garde probably the most avant-garde feature films that Lynch has created. You have this spectrum where on one end you have something like The Straight Story or The Elephant Man. But at the other end of that spectrum, where you have the most avant-garde works, I would say you probably have Inland Empire and Eraserhead, at least among his feature films. But the thing is, they're experimental and avant-garde for different reasons from one another. Uh, Inland Empire has the most kind of chaotic, free-flowing, jumbled story where we're cutting across all these different strands of narrative. The story of Eraserhead is um, far simpler in that sense. It's got a straightforward premise and fairly simple action, but it's the most avant-garde in the sense of its world building, where it's creating this lynch land where all the, you know, everything takes place that really doesn't have much relation to the real world at all. Uh, Movies like Blue Velvet or Wild at Heart are often exaggerated, but they exist in like a recognizable version of reality. A Raisner Head is like this psychic dreamscape that really uh, can't, you can't place it within a real world context. Whereas Inland Empire, you can. It cross, cuts across all of these weird uh, different realities in Poland and Hollywood and all these places. But it takes place in a in the recognizable world, and it suggests that there are all these intersections and wormholes between different spaces within that. The second connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is they're both very focused personal narratives. We see most of the story through the subjective experience of a central character, or in Inland Empire's case, a central fragmented character. Now, the difference, of course, is Henry really is just one character. You can see the other characters as maybe aspects of him, but there's this one unified character who guides us through this entire world very closely. You can't say the same of Inland Empire. Um, for the most part, it's Laura Dern, although there are a fair amount of scenes, not too many, but some with the lost girl um, a, a, there as well. But she kind of seems like she overlaps with the Laura Dern character somehow. We're not sure how. And Laura Dern herself is playing th two, three, maybe four different characters throughout this film. And that is a signature of, of where Lynch has gone through his career away from these linear stories to these very complicated interweaving different stories, usually two and then lately with, you know, Inland Empire and perhaps the return in some ways as well. Um, these different um, multi uh, like a multiverse almost. It's also worth pointing out uh, both of these characters' narratives are kicked off by a next-door neighbor coming in and delivering a, a message. The neighbor that Henry is attracted to across the hall from him and then Grace Zabriskie to uh, Nikki's house in Inland Empire. The third connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is that both are very intense psychodramas with so much of what we're seeing reflecting a kind of struggle within the mind of the character. Um, whether or not we take that literally. This is true of all Lynch films to a certain degree, but I think these are two of the most extreme versions of that. What's significant about the divergence between them, I think, you can see this in Lynch in, in the fact that both Henry and um, 
the Lost Girl slash increasingly Nikki or Sue as the film goes along, kind of entering into the Lost Girl's sphere, are both very afraid and their lives are defined to a certain extent by this fear. But Henry's is a more generalized anxiety and a fear of responsibility to somebody weaker than him. And uh, Nikki's fear as she becomes more akin with the Lost Girl, maybe before that as well, given her very controlling husband, is a fear of exploitation, of abuse, of control, somebody else having control and power over her. I think there's one film in which that dynamic is present, but both of the characters are male. He generally codes it as male and female, but it's kind of something else that he, that that's the physical representation he puts on it, but it's more about a divide within the psyche. And that film, by the way, is The Elephant Man, where you have John Merrick as this victim figure and Treves as this complex protector who at times wonders if he's being abusive towards uh, Merrick. And throughout the film, Merrick goes on kind of the same journey as, say, a Laura Palmer or um, perhaps Nikki in Inland Empire, away from being this kind of object of pity and abuse to a sort of a self-realization where within the limited options present to him, he's able to take control. And you see that very much present in Inland Empire and Fire Walk With Me in some of those films. The fourth connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is family, although they have very different conceptions of family in mind, and they're focused on different family members. And even the areas where they overlap are treated very differently. In Eraserhead's case, the relevant family is the wife and the child. He, Henry is forced into this paternal position that he just doesn't seem suited for at all. And in Inland Empire's case, the family is the wife. And again, with this, this very gender-specific coding, she is at the mercy of, it seems, a more powerful husband. And various incarnations of the character she plays throughout the film are abused, beaten, controlled by these more powerful male figures. And so we see an anxiety about the family in both films, but it's, it's projected in different directions. And both films seem to revolve around dead children. In Eraserhead's case, the child dies at the end of the film, but it's building towards that with the hero himself, the killer of the child. And then in Inland Empire, it's very, very submerged. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. It's not till two hours and 11 minutes into the movie that one of the characters, Laura Dern's playing the battered woman who uh, speaks with this guy in this uh, dark stairway. She mentioned something about having a child that died. And they play that scene again on the screen in the theater at the end of the movie. And then when the lost girl goes back into the house that was Sue's house, the husband who we've seen throughout the film comes in and he's there with a little with a little boy. So what does this child have to do with whatever her trauma is in the story? I don't know. I'd be interested to hear back from other people what they think of that. The fifth connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is infidelity. Both stories, uh, although it's not necessarily the central plot, both stories seem to frame the character's journey through... Um, an affair with somebody else uh, outside of a marriage. But in Eraserhead's case, you have Henry um, having an affair, or it may just be a fantasy, but sleeping with the neighbor, who is the first character, the first other character that he encounters in the film. And oddly enough, she's the one who tells him that his his wife, or his soon-to-be wife, was looking for him. And then in Inland Empire, you have the character, uh, Nikki, having an affair with the other 
the co-star. And there is a, uh, a definite sense in which this may be the trigger that gets her to start confusing herself with the character because the character is also having an affair. And, and there's a lot of anxiety surrounding this because her husband is extremely intimidating. He has a very creepy and kind of almost so creepy it's funny conversation with Justin Thoreau where he just smiles with these intense eyes and threatens him if he does anything with his wife tells him that he's not a free she's not a free agent and uh, she's bound and it seems like in this film certainly and possibly in Eraserhead as well uh, the whole idea of marriage that serves as a kind of a metaphor for locking yourself up and being constrained and not being willing to um, go to this other realm. Inland Empire, the actress has to make this leap into the character's consciousness and betraying the marital vows is sort of what allows her to do this. It's interesting, of course, that um, during the making of Eraserhead, uh, Lynch got divorced. And uh, during Inland Empire, uh, David Lynch was also leading up to a divorce. So you can, you can read these plot mechanisms, uh, I guess, however you like, but that's certainly an interesting thing to consider. The sixth connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is that they're both L.A. films shot in location in the city that Lynch has lived in for almost 50 years. And here the difference um, in this similarity is quite stark. In Eraserhead's case, Lynch turns L.A. into something that's really the opposite of what most people think of L.A. as. this sunny, open, but you can kind of see out over all of these houses and take in the whole landscape. And he shoots in these close-quartered, industrial, brick, dirty, uh, urban decay-type locations. Um, in fact, there's a documentary that uh, I think a clip from it is included on the Criterion Eraser headset, where Jack Nance and David Lynch in the 80s go visit one of the places where they shot Eraserhead, and it's kind of shocking to see them riding in an open convertible with the sun shining down, they got sunglasses on, the palm trees going by, Sunset Boulevard, and then they reach this this space, and it's like, oh, wow, they found the world of Eraserhead within this. And even, you know, Henry's dark, claustrophobic room was shot in this grand mansion up in Beverly Hills where the AFI was. So Eraserhead is an L.A. film that disguises the fact that it's an L.A. film very, very well. And uh, Inland Empire is a Hollywood film that puts, or a Los Angeles film, it's kind of the opposite of a Hollywood film in many ways, but which doesn't at all hide the fact that it's shot in Los Angeles and in fact makes that a central tenet of the movie. Um, this is a film about Hollywood, even though it is so anti-Hollywood in its, in its kind of style and sensibility. It's a film about making films in the film industry in the sunny climate you see lynch moving away from wanting to create his own sort of sequestered world within the world he's in to soaking up the world he's in and making that the subject of the film you know he'd been living in los angeles for i think 25 years before he really made a film that was set in los angeles and then after that most of his films were set in los angeles the seventh connection between Eraserhead and inland empire is that there are hidden spaces in the film that speak to characters in the movie in Eraserhead's case, you have the radiator with the little stage behind it where the lady dances. And in Inland Empire, you have the rabbit room. Um, both in these cases, very stylized, artificial spaces with kind of magical figures inhabiting them, delivering cryptic messages. So the interesting contrast between these two places for me, because they actually are, there's, there's, there's kind of a continuity there in how 
they're shot, um, even uh, in a lot of cases, photographed from above, like you're looking inside a diorama. But the interesting difference to me is in how they were created. The lady in the radiator was added to a racer head after the original conception, whereas the rabbits predated Inland Empire. It was already a web series that Lynch then incorporated into the film when he made the film later on. With Eraserhead, Lynch was at the beginning of his career, and he didn't have that much to draw upon. And it's interesting how the film was made, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, but, you know, he was kind of creating from scratch, whereas by Inland Empire, he just had this rather enormous, especially when you consider his paintings and his music and everything else, this rather enormous body of work. And even at that very time, Inland Empire arose out of this multitude of projects he was creating for his website. So you have, a, in that case, a creator at the beginning of his career with an idea coming to him later after this initial simple premise, and, and then a creator at the end of their career with so much that they can uh, pull up from their, kind of their archives, so to speak. The eighth connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is that both were created over many, many years some of the longest processes that any director has ever worked to create a film. These two films both took approximately four to five years, I would say. Um, really from, I think, 2002 to two, or 2003, uh, certainly 2002 if you include the Rabbits stuff, Lynch was working towards Inland Empire, which came out in 2006. And in Eraserhead's case, he started it around 71, 72 and finished it finally in 77. These were just these defined whole eras of his life. And there, the contrast that's sort of compelling is, for one thing, the age. You had Lynch as somebody in his mid-20s, this kid, really, this student, um, turning 30 around the time that he finally finished this great project. And then in Inland Empire's case, you have somebody in his mid-50s reaching 60 at the end of the project. Um, in both cases, the film's came out within like a year of those those you know significant birthdays you have a much more locked down process in Eraserhead where he's just immersed in this world and he has to do other odd jobs and things but his life seems to be totally centered around Eraserhead just that was that was his life he talks about that in the art life how he was living in this world and in Inland Empire it was one of many things he was doing and a lot of things got drawn into it, but, you know, he was serving on the, I think, the jury of the Cotton Film Festival around this time. He was traveling internationally, which is why he was in Poland in the first place. He was shooting photography things. He was uh, getting very involved in promoting transcendental meditation, started a foundation either soon after this or during this time. I would imagine he was working towards it. And so I think this is reflected in the films themselves. Eraserhead is, is such a very focused sort of cloistered film and Inland Empire sprawling and open to all of these uh, different streams. The ninth connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is that their heroes end the film by killing somebody, which seems to welcome them into the next realm. But they handle this in very different ways, and this goes back to the male-female divide, for one thing. Uh, in Inland Empire, Nikki or Sue, or whoever she is at that point, I think she's kind of all of the above. I think they've all been kind of integrated she shoots the Phantom, this terrifying, burly kind of ogre of a man who's been haunting the film, who apparently has the power to hypnotize people, and who has been holding the lost girl prisoner. That's kind of established 
in the opening montage of the film and at other points. But what's interesting is when she shoots the Phantom, she sees her face stretched over his, this terrifying, like, clown version of Laura Dern that everyone who's seen the film definitely remembers. But in Eraserhead, you have Henry killing the baby, and the baby has often been associated with him, with the baby's head popping out of his own body and and everything like that. So, and in the beginning the um, embryonic form of the baby emerging from his mouth, etc. So you have, in his case, the hero in Eraserhead, the hero of the movie is killing one of the weakest characters who's tormenting him. And in Inland Empire, the heroine of the movie is killing one of the most powerful characters who's tormented you know, several people throughout the film. You have this very different power dynamic at play. And I think that's relevant, even if both are purely allegorical tellings of somebody excising their more negative, their more negative qualities. It's the whole dweller on the threshold myth from that's touched upon in Twin Peaks, this idea of your shadow self and meeting that and overcoming it by accepting that it's part of you. And uh, even if both of those allegorical representations of that, I think it's interesting in telling that the power dynamics are so different and the way it's presented is so different. And I think that says a lot about where Lynch was at at various points in his sort of artistic sensibility. The 10th connection between Eraserhead and Inland Empire is that both films end with one character embracing another as light floods the screen. In Henry's case, he needs this light. He needs the lady in the radiator. Um, he is the one who is basically being welcomed. Uh, he did take an action that led him there. He is the one being comforted, it seems. Whereas in Inland Empire, um, Nikki is the one who's liberating the lost girl. Her, her action is actually to redeem somebody else or to rescue somebody else who needed the help. And that seems significant to me. And I, I always put Firewalk with me in the middle of this kind of fulcrum between these two different types of characters. Um, because I think Laura is a character who, almost by the seat of his pants, Lynch makes her into a heroine at the end of the film. If if you read her as um, pulling in the angel that saves Renette, which I like to do, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but um, I think the film allows for it. And I like that reading. And I think that paves the way for um, Inland Empire, where you have a protagonist who isn't just trying to get somewhere for themselves, but is actually um, going through a process which which rescues somebody else. Eraserhead is very much the film of a solitary, withdrawn, negative individual. You know, Henry, uh, feel for him as we as we might and often do. He is very much entirely in it for himself. Anything he does for others, he feels he has to do. It's an obligation. Um, whereas in Inland Empire, we see somebody who is is moving towards a broader consciousness that embraces other people and um, doesn't just liberate herself, but uh, but others as well. And, and you have almost, it's it's almost like evangelist in this sense of spreading the light. So in addition to that coverage, I got some great feedback on Inland Empire that I'm going to share here. This week I have a piece of feedback on uh, the Lynch episode, particularly Inland Empire, and it comes from Sabo, who is a patron. I'm only halfway through listening to this episode, and I'm really enjoying it. 
Of course, the fact that you are covering three Lynch films has nothing to do with it. Wink face. Somehow it's more rewarding listening to reviews of films I have already seen myself, although I'm always eager to learn of things unknown. I share your love for Inland Empire. I saw it on the big screen when it first came out. One hour into the film, half of the audience had left. At the end of the film, I felt confused. I didn't have enough to hold on to, and I disliked the film. Lynch had gone one step too far. But being an avid Lynch fan, I of course revisited the film, and each time I did, I liked it better. The mystery of Inland Empire is still very much alive. I haven't seen many theories that give a unified explanation of the film. I really hope one day you make a scene-by-scene analysis of the film. I think the debate about do you have to analyze a Lynch film or let it wash over you and experience the emotional flow is an unnecessary one. I think emotional and plot analysis should always go hand in hand. Lynch's films contain many emotional clues, which shed light on plot questions. Sometimes purely rational plot analysis can lead you astray when you ignore the emotional clues. An example, who is responsible for tearing Laura away out of the Red Room in Twin Peaks Season 3? Many have argued that the fireman is transporting her to a safe place, possibly Odessa. However, if we see the anguish and panic Laura experiences, these are not the emotions of somebody being saved. And thus I hope that one day you will make a scene-by-scene emotional plot analysis of this beautiful mystery. Maybe a video essay? Kind regards, Sabo. And uh, in the past for a patron podcast, I recorded some additional thoughts on the backyard location of Inland Empire, why I find it such an intriguing, fascinating, uh, however mundane location. But I I have to mention, it's a little confusing. I erroneously identified this sequence, which this this clip I watched on on, uh, YouTube called Room to Dream. Uh, and I had it written down that I had watched this and I, so I left some comments on, on what I thought it was, you know, discussed this scene. It, it turns out, I think it's actually a scene from like a deleted scene from uh, Inland Empire, the scene that I talk about in this uh, sequence. It's not actually that room to dream clip, even though I call it that room to dream, as it turns out, is actually uh, something that Lynch, it, it may be an extract from Inland Empire as well. It's got the same actors, but it's not part of the deleted scenes collection. It was actually done as like a demonstration for Avid on like digital editing. So Lynch released this somehow as as like an Easter egg with an Avid uh, uh, set of discs or something. I, I don't really know the context of how, if they put it up on their website or what, but uh, that's what room to dream actually is. So that's not what's discussed here. Uh, I'll have to discuss that at some point as well. Um, That one is actually an exchange between two of the women and one of the Polish guys. But what I discuss here is a scene with Laura Dern. So that's the uh, prelude of what the hell I'm talking about here. But here's what I actually had to say about that location. I think Emily Stoffel and another one of those actresses who plays those sort of valley girls uh, just sitting in the yard, swaying back and forth. And Laura Dern is talking to them like, have I met you? Do you remember meeting me before? And it's all in that sort of weird little scrabbly uh, suburban backyard in the in the valley in L.A. And I just, I love that location so much. I can't even put my finger on just why. It's, it's like one of my favorite locations in film. Uh, those scenes where they have the barbecue back there. I don't know. It just, it's, it sets a mood and kind of creates this magic like dream space that feels like, It feels like something I experienced early in childhood and didn't, you know, and and that type of memory is what I mean. It isn't, you know, I I don't think there's anything exactly like that. Maybe there is something close and that's what I'm 
that's what's evoking this. But it's just, it's so evocative to me, this very ordinary yet slightly strange space that he he uh, digs into in these scenes. I've even thought of making just like a video on that, on the scene where like he spills the ketchup on his shirt and stuff and they're all looking at each other and these weird Polish guys come into this little place. And I just, I love worlds that you can disappear into and explore and wander off into the distance of, you know, there's something to be said for discipline and kind of order and organizing and having everything kind of pop up in that, um, that sort of, that sort of, uh, how would I put it? Uh, Not archetypal, but like, you know, everything is clear in its purpose and hums along sort of like a well-oiled machine. And, I like that stuff a lot, actually, sometimes. Sometimes I I love it, and it's just what the doctor ordered. But, you know, I love that this little sketch, this little deleted scene is called Room to Dream, because that's what it does for me. This type of openness, this type of open filmmaking, Jacques Rivette does this a lot, too, and uh, other filmmakers, Apichong wears wears the goal. They create these kind of environments that just feel like you could wander around in them and and almost kind of fall into a different reality. And Inland Empire is so good at that in general. And finally, in a podcast I uh, for my patrons, I connected Inland Empire to the Teresa Banks storyline of Twin Peaks. So obviously, spoilers here. If you haven't seen Twin Peaks, uh, I discussed this character from uh, Firewalk With Me and The Missing Pieces and why uh, that that particular storyline of hers makes me think of Inland Empire. Finally, the storyline I want to tie into Missing Pieces is the Teresa Banks case. This is a story that's only, uh, we only see Teresa's side of it in the film and the deleted scenes. On the show, it comes up as a reference point to help sort of amplify the Laura mystery. So a quick summary of this would be the FBI is reopening an, in, an unsolved murder of a young drifter now that a similar case has emerged. The characters who are involved on the show and the film are Teresa, Cable, Cliff, Carl, Rod, Jacques Renault, Renette, Gerard, the one-armed man, Chet and Sam, Diane, Leland, who kills her, of course. Uh, Gordon Cole pushes for the investigation of it. Albert, the spirits, because the Tremonts, uh, known as the Chalfonts at this time, are Teresa's neighbors in the trailer park. And they may have given her the ring. That's speculation. That's never shown. But they had some sort of connection to her, it seems. And then, of course, Cooper goes to the trailer park after Chet disappears and kind of touches on the mystery and speaks to Diane about it afterwards. This lasts through much of the series, but it's only in certain episodes. It's brought up in the pilot and then episode 8, episode 16, and uh, Firewalk With Me and the Missing Pieces. It's something that's always kind of there as a reference point. And you get the sense sometimes the writers are almost like, oh, yeah, that thing. We should probably do something with that. Oh, well. It's dealt with a lot in the book, My Life, My Tapes, the autobiography of Cooper. And you almost get the sense that that was supposed to put it to rest. Like, okay, let's give a few details. And actually, Cable's in that book as well, interestingly enough. Although I I think uh, they present him a little differently, but you can almost see the basis there of the character of Firewalk with me. Which is cool, because I wouldn't think Lynch read that book. Maybe Robert Engels did and had some thoughts about it. Lynch tends not to read... Twin Peaks spinoff books. So on the show, the Teresa case, it's first brought up to show that there's a serial killer out there because the letters have been placed under both Laura's and Teresa's fingernails and only the killer would know about that. And she's set up in opposition to Laura as like, 
this drifter girl who had no friends and family from the other side of the state. And so they couldn't do anything with her case. Now Laura will give them the opportunity to go forward. And later on, we find out that uh, Leo was in jail the night that Teresa was killed. So he couldn't have been the one who killed her. So that clears him as a suspect. And in episode 16, Leland confesses to killing Teresa, but he says, they made me do it. So it's still positioned as a sort of vague other case, almost extraneous at this point, where, oh yeah, the spirits made him kill someone else too. These these, these unspoken, un, unnamed you know, uh, in creatures or whatever, these forces that were controlling him. But in Firewalk, we'll be missing pieces. We get a much more mundane down-to-earth. And actually, you know, Tony Dayub, the critic who I corresponded with on Firewalk with me years ago, made the point that the Teresa Banks' case is almost like the key to understanding the Lara case, that it grounds the whole story in a way that ties Deer Meadow in with the rest of the film. The, the Peaks-Lynch connection I want to draw this this month is from the Teresa Banks case is Inland Empire. And here's why. So Inland Empire is a movie about, a, a it's a David Lynch film from 2006 about a movie star who's playing this, this uh, woman who's like a servant who's having an affair with a wealthy man of the house. And then it kind of branches off. She's having some sort of breakdown. It goes into all these weird fragments, the narrative splinters. At times, she is like an abused woman who's struck back against, like she gouged out the eye of one of her attackers. And this character seems very much in the vein of Teresa, somebody who is sort of downtrodden, but also resistant. And it kind of brings that up for me. And also the way in which we see this story sort of presented in all these different contexts. Like we view it from afar as this kind of procedural clue. Then we see it sort of up close into the ground through Teresa's eyes. And it's always there as a kind of corresponding tale that overlaps with and almost kind of mirrors or echoes the Laura mystery in the way that Inland Empire stories kind of mirror and echo one another. So that was the main connection that jumped out at me, I think. And uh, Deer Meadow in general is sort of this, this place where you get uh, a sense, like you get a sense of sort of an alternate Twin Peaks. So so there's an alternate universe kind of going on in a way, in a subtle way, a real world grounded way that Lynch would play out in his later films. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you really want to support my work, you can become a patron, get access to hundreds of hours of podcasts that are not available publicly right now, uh, some of which... I have no plans to release publicly, so a lot of exclusive material on there as well. And uh, I'll also uh, let you know for uh, the next episode, what's coming up, I don't have a preview in the docket because it's not just focused on a film. It's actually a bit of a teaser and announcement for the podcast that I'm splitting off into different uh, feeds. So I'm going to be left to the movies Twin Peaks Cinema and Lost in Twin Peaks are all going to be their own independent uh, podcast. And I'm going to play clips from the upcoming episodes for each of those, kind of get you interested in those feeds. And then we'll be back the following week with uh, some more film reviews on the Lost in the Movies podcast. So I'll see you then. Thank you for listening and uh, see you on the other side. (laughs) 